This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 23rd, 1985. Air India Flight 182, a Boeing 747 with 329 people on board, is cruising over the Atlantic Ocean, 120 miles southwest of Ireland, as it flies from Montreal to London on its way to Bombay. The flight has just checked in with Shannon Air Traffic Control, then a few minutes later, it disappears from Air Traffic Control's radar. Two other planes have converged near the Air India flight, and the radar scope has merged all three planes into one blip on the tower's two-dimensional screen. After a short while, the blips diverge, and only two planes reappear on the scope. Shannon Air Traffic Control tries to hail the Air India flight, but gets no response. Air India 182 has disappeared from the air. What happened to Air India 182? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, and hello, everyone. Hello, welcome. Listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. We've got another episode for you here. This is a big one. Um, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything yet, so I, uh-huh. I don't want to say too much. But this is, this is, this is a big one. I've been looking at for a long time. You did a good job visually painting that because I was like dots on a radar, and then there's like, wait, there should be another dot. Yeah, <laughs> like, if you think about it, you know, when planes are flying through airspace, it's three dimensional, right? Like. They have X, Y, we talk about this sometimes, the X, Y, and the Z axis. Mm-hmm. And in this case, these three planes are flying at different altitudes. Uh, off the top of my head, I want to say Air India was at 31,000 feet. One of the other planes was at 35,000 feet. And I think another one was at 37,000 feet. So they have distance between them, but they all kind of converge. And on a flat you know, monitor, you can't tell that difference. So they all just kind of smoosh together like one blip. Yeah. So it's like three dots meet, but then only two dots come out. It's like, uh-oh, what happened? It's also weird that they would all align at the same time this seems like a, i mean i guess in the entire world and all the planes that happens and they go along certain flight paths i mean it's gonna right. bound to happen but like it just does seem like it's a lot of air and sky you know right. like, well you, like you kind of nailed it there you know there's certain passageways and certain routes that planes want to take especially you know with wind and like you know gulf streams and things like that in the in the upper atmosphere so i mean it makes sense that they're kind of close to each other but of course there are Minimums that they're supposed to maintain. Minimum distances they're supposed to keep from each other. We're going to dive into that a bit in this episode. And we've talked about this before. Before we get to it, though, I do want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we've got Twitter. We've got Instagram. We've got Facebook. Uh, we've got tons of stuff out there. Uh, you really should follow it to see pictures and uh, videos that you know we can't adequately convey in an audio format. And if you want to do us a big favor, if you like this show, while you're listening... You can hit like on whatever you're, if you're listening to your phone, you can, there's like a little ellipses. You can hit that and you can hit share and then you can share to social media. Yeah. Share it with a friend. It doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. It's a free service. You could do it right now. Do it right now. And we'd really appreciate it. So before we we get into the episode, uh, I, I, I got to say something, Chris. Mm-hmm. Last night, we changed the time we were going to record this particular episode. We were supposed to record two hours earlier, but uh, we delayed mm-hmm. it till right now when we're recording. Uh, I had dental work done this morning. <laughs> and at our original record time, I could not feel half of my face. And uh, I was sitting here with the microphone saying 747, 74, and it was like <laughs> 747. <laughs> like it, was, it was not, it would have been a very different episode if we had recorded at our original time. You would, it would have been very difficult to understand me. So I'm glad we, we delayed a little bit. Part of me is now a little sad that we, <laughs> that we don't. <laughs> what happened like, to, man, Gus, he's been drinking recorded podcasts. <laughs> I knew I was like, oh no, this is this. And I kept saying that because like, this is an episode with the 747. Like, I know saying the F sounds is going to be so hard. <laughs> okay. So, Air India Flight 182, it was a passenger flight from Montreal 
to Sahar International Airport in Bombay, India. And along the way, it was going to stop in London and then Delhi on June 23rd, 1985. So the leg we're talking about right now is uh, Montreal to London. Okay. That's why it was just southwest of Ireland. The flight was crewed by Captain Hans Singh Narendra, who was 56, had uh, 20,379 hours. And the first officer was actually also a captain, so I'll say co-pilot, was uh, Satwinder Singh Binder, who was 41 years old, had 7,489 flight hours. Uh, and flight engineer... Dara Dumasia, who was 57 and had 14,885 flight hours. The plane was a Boeing 747. I can say the F. Uh, 747. <laughs> about seven years old uh, and had 23,634 hours and 7,525 cycles. Besides them, there were 19 other crew members and 307 passengers on board for a total of 329. That's a lot. It's a lot of people. 747, you know, it was a big plane. Uh, day before this accident, on June 22nd, the plane was operating as Air India Flight 181 from Bombay to Delhi to Frankfurt to Toronto and Montreal. And when Flight 181 arrived in Toronto, so it's the same plane, just the previous leg or the previous day. When Flight 181 arrived in Toronto, all the passengers and their baggage were offloaded to complete customs and immigration checks. Transit cards were handed to 68 passengers destined for Montreal. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, this is you know the day before the, the uh-huh. flight coming uh, here. Uh, while this was going on in Vancouver, so on the west coast of Canada, a man who called himself Manjeet Singh called to confirm his reservation on Air India flights 181 and 182, but he was told that he was waitlisted for those flights. He was offered alternative arrangements, but he declined them. He arrived at the Vancouver airport and checked into a busy line for Canadian Pacific Airlines flight to Toronto. So he's flying from Vancouver to Toronto on Canadian Pacific Airlines. And then in uh-huh. Toronto, he's going to get on the Air India flight. He asked the agent if his suitcase could be transferred to that Air India flights, but the agents initially refused his request since he was not confirmed from Toronto to Montreal or from Montreal to Bombay. The process of transferring bags between multiple airlines is called interlining. So Singh says, wait, I'll get my brother for you. But as he starts to walk away, the gate agent agrees to accept the bag, but told him he's going to have to check in again with Air India and Toronto. Mm-hmm. This was actually kind of a chaotic scene. At this moment, he actually showed up to the airport about 20 minutes before the plane was scheduled to take off. And he got in a line with like 30 people behind him. And, you know, initially the gate agent's telling him, we can't check your bag all the way through because you're on standby. And he started berating the gate agent, yelling. And then, you know, eventually he says, wait, I'm going to get my brother who's going to tell you that this is okay. Then the gate agent just says, fine, you know, we'll do it. We'll we'll check your bag all the way through. But, you know, you're going to have to check in again at uh, Toronto. So he... Isn't getting on the flight, but he wants his bag on the flight. He's on the wait list. He's not confirmed on uh-huh. that flight yet. Uh, or I should say not on the wait list. He's on standby for that. Yeah, and he's putting his. he wants his bag on there regardless. Right. That's making me suspicious of what's in that bag, but well, go wh- on. What should make you even more suspicious uh-huh. is the fact he doesn't even get on the plane in Vancouver. Oh. The flight going from Vancouver to Toronto takes off without him, but his bag is on that flight. Hmm. Check-in for the flight from Toronto to Montreal began around 6.30 p.m. Uh, universal time that evening where the passengers and luggage went through security checks and x-ray machines. The way the security was done made it so there was personal identification by the passengers of all checked-in baggage except the baggage which had been interlined to this flight. The flight closed check-ins at 9.50 p.m. universal time and there were 10 no-shows and 4 go-shows. And a go-show is someone who arrives at the airport early in hopes of getting on an earlier flight than what they originally booked. So basically they had... 10 people who didn't show up for the flight and four people who showed up earlier probably got on an earlier flight. I never heard that phrase. I, knew, I mean, I knew that was a thing. You 
show up early and maybe get, but a go show. Yeah, you're learning. We're all learning today, right? Yeah. Everyone's going to learn something. <laughs> it's an educational podcast. Boarding began 20 minutes later where the passengers went through another security check that involved handheld metal detectors and their hand baggage was opened and physically checked. So, um, you know, there's do that thing where like they get wanded down with a metal detector and there's a security officer who goes through their carry-on bags and, you know, looks through them, make sure they're okay. Mm-hmm. The interlined baggage was sent on a conveyor belt with checked baggage to be x-rayed. However, the x-ray machine worked intermittently for this period of time and it ends up breaking down and it wasn't showing any images on its screens. It couldn't be repaired at the time because it was on the weekend and they couldn't get a hold of a technician. So a security officer for Air India advised the rest of the baggage to be checked with a handheld explosive detector called a PD-4. Is there not another x-ray machine? Not at this time, no. There's just the one and it's broken. So they use one of these little like, I don't know, it looks kind of like a walkie-talkie and it like beeps when it detects explosive uh-huh. uh, material. So they're using these. They're like, you know, waving them around the bags and they end up checking about 60 to 70 bags that way. Since this isn't a device they normally use, you know, the they have like the lead officer who knows how to use it has to kind of show the other people how to use it and shows them like the noise it makes when it detects explosive residue. Okay. Another uh, thing I want to mention here about this flight. Mm-hmm. You know, typically Boeing 747s have four engines on them. We've covered this many times in the past. This particular flight had a fifth engine on it. What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we've covered this in the past, but planes are designed so that if necessary, or this 747 in particular is designed so that if necessary, it could carry an extra inoperable engine. So like if the airline needs to move an engine from one airport to another for whatever oh. reason, they just attach the other. En- it's not providing any thrust. It's not doing anything. They just attach the fifth engine up under the left wing and they just uh, fly along with it. Okay. I've never seen this in person. I've only ever seen photos of this. I would love to see this. But sadly, the 747 is pretty much retired at this point. I don't think it's something I'll ever get to see. And it's just carrying it. It's not even like, there's no power. Okay. So attaching this fifth engine to the plane delayed the flight for about an hour and 25 minutes. So it's like, that's kind of why, you know, if you pay attention to the times, like things are taking a little long to get done here. And Mm -hmm. attaching this engine added to the delay. So the aircraft finally takes off from Toronto at 1216 a.m. universal time. Uh, lands in Montreal about an hour later. 65 passengers and three personnel disembarked, while the remaining 202 passengers remained on board. The new passengers and luggage uh, went through similar security checks to the ones that happened in Toronto, but there were actually three suspect suitcases that were pulled off the x-ray machine because it looked like maybe they had wires in them. These three pieces of luggage were not put on the plane, but you know, after further examination, they found there was nothing wrong with them. They got pulled off because... They saw wires on them and right. were they singling them out, you think, because the x-ray machine was down? So they were like... This is now in Montreal. Okay. The x-ray machine was not working in uh, Toronto. Okay. But yeah, so I think, you know, they, they just went ahead and pulled these options out of an abundance of caution. But like I said, nothing ended up being wrong with them. Okay. And here in Montreal, another 105 people board the plane with five no-shows and two go-shows and no interlining passengers or baggage. The flight took off from Montreal at 2.18 a.m. universal time with an estimated arrival in, in London of 8.33 a.m. The cockpit voice recorder and air traffic control tapes show the flight was uneventful and normal. But suddenly, at 7.14 a.m. universal time, while being monitored by the air traffic control at Shannon, the aircraft disappeared from the radar scope. And how far away is it from the airport at this point? At this point, they're just off the coast of Ireland. They're about 110, 120 miles off the coast of Ireland. So they're getting close to London at this point. This is hours later. How far are they behind? They've been in the air at this point about five hours. At this point, I don't know exactly how far behind schedule they were. Mm-hmm. They were behind schedule, but I can't tell you for certain okay. right now. But this was five hours into the flight, a little over an hour before they're supposed to land in London. And they just disappear from the radar scope. Mm. 
And then air traffic control at Shannon actually at this point becomes informed that there was some kind of accident and the aircraft wreckage has been sighted in the ocean 110 miles west-southwest of Cork, Ireland. So it's on the radar scope one second. Then the next thing you know, the air traffic control is being told the plane has crashed. There's wreckage in the ocean. Wait, and so they noticed, oh, the radar blip went away and then they like, how quickly do they notice the wreckage, I guess? I mean, well, immediately they know, hey, there was a plane there. They try to contact Air India. They get nothing back. They ask planes in the area to try to contact Air India. Uh, no one hears anything. It was just within minutes. They go to scrambled okay. and call emergency response. And then that's when they're informed, oh, oh, there's wreckage. Okay. So it's very, very quick. So 16 minutes after it disappeared from the radar, the Marine Rescue Coordination Center in Shannon there was informed of the disappearance. So, I mean, that answers your question. It's within mm. minutes. It's very quick. They called the Valentia Coast radio station and they request a pan broadcast to request any vessels in the area to keep a lookout for the aircraft. At 7.50 a.m. Uh, Universal Time, an Irish naval vessel reported it was 54 miles from the site of the accident and was heading in that direction. Some aircraft also began to pick up an ELT signal, and the ELT is the emergency locator transmitter. It's the beacon that automatically activates when an accident occurs. It's like what helps them find the black boxes. So we think we talked about this with yeah. the, in the Malaysia 370 episode. Yeah. So ships and helicopters were sent to the location of that ELT signal. And at 9.37 a.m. Universal Time, one of the ships reported seeing three bodies in the water. A couple hours later, numerous bodies in the water were sighted. And throughout the day, lifeboats were deployed to recover bodies. Search continued throughout the next day. June 24th, and a few more bodies were found along with some wreckage. And 131 bodies were recovered. And eight of the bodies were found with flail pattern injuries, which indicates that the victims came out of the aircraft at altitude before it hit the water. And that basically means like, I guess they look at the injuries on the bodies, uh-huh. and if they have these flail pattern injuries, they know that the body hit the water instead of the body being in a yeah. fuselage that hits the water. So they can tell like, these bodies hit the water, so they weren't even in the plane at this point. So they could tell like the impact of the body, like versus the impact of like blunt. Tr- yeah, exactly. Exactly for the, the impact of being in the fuselage when it happens. Mm. On top of that, 26 of the bodies showed signs of hypoxia and 25 showed signs of decompression. And that means rupture of the eardrums without injury to the skull or damage to the lungs. So they know that these people came out at altitude. Yeah. 23 bodies showed evidence of receiving injuries from a vertical force and 49 showed signs of impact type injuries. And doing these pathological examinations, they didn't reveal any injuries indicative of fire or explosion. Oh. So all they can tell at this point is the people came out of the plane at altitude and hit the water. Okay. But, you know, they know because of the flail injuries that the aircraft had broken up in midair and the victims had come out of the airplane at altitude. So the medical examiner did say it was possible that if there was an explosion in the cargo hold, it would be possible that these bodies would not show any signs of explosion. Okay. If the explosion happens in the cargo hold and goes down, then the people above it in the cabin wouldn't have any residue or anything on them. Mm -hmm. So even though they didn't have any explosive, they had nothing indicative of fire or explosive residue on them, it is still possible that there was a bomb. Like this did not exclusively rule out a bomb. Okay. One other, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to kind of bring this note up. One really morbid thing that I, I, I read in this uh, reports I saw when doing this research is that they determined that three of the victims drowned. Oh. So they found, you know, water in the lungs and water in the stomachs of, uh, of these passengers. And who's to say, you know, they may have been critically injured uh-huh. by the time they got into the, to the water, 
but it's still, they, you know, were not killed by the impact. They ended up drowning. What's that? Yeah, it's just sad. I'm going to assume there weren't any survivors. No, there were no, no survivors. So oceanographic charts indicated that the depth of the sea in this crash area was about 6,700 feet, and it was in a flat seabed region. So with the use of sonar and a robot submarine, uh, the cockpit voice recorder was found on July 9th, and the flight data recorder was found on July 10th. There was a, a, an interesting side note here. This, this mm-hmm. isn't something I was necessarily going to talk about. But um, when they were looking for the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder, the searchers were finding a signal from an ELT, but it wasn't at the right frequency. They kept detecting this beacon but it was, you know, it was a, I believe it was a higher pitch frequency than what they were looking for. Uh-huh. So they kept ignoring it, and it, it took them a while to, to finally get around to looking at it. And when they realized that the casing on the black boxes, I believe they were, it was like some type of ceramic material, uh-huh. had become impacted and dented as a result of the crash, which changed the frequency that the beacon was emitting. Oh. Yeah, it was like this weird deformation of the black boxes caused them to change their frequency. They were still emitting their their beacon, but it was being ignored for a little while at first because huh. uh, they thought, you know, the researchers thought it was something else that was unrelated to their uh, to their search. What else could it have been? Like, it's like... I know that they said it was emitting at, I believe it was a 42 kilohertz or 42,000 hertz signal, which is really high pitch. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what else. Maybe they thought, is there a, a, a motor or something? I don't know. I can't even begin to speculate. So when they were doing this recovery, the four engines were all extensively damaged, and a view of the fan blades did not show signs of any rotational damage, and it could not be determined whether any pre-impact failures occurred. The landing gear was examined and found to be in the up position at the time of impact, and the pieces of the flaps and spoilers that were recovered indicated they were all retracted at impact. So everything was correct. Gear was up, flaps and spoilers are up, the engines don't seem like they had any damage before they hit the water. They're really trying to piece this together. The section of the plane with the cockpit and first class was found nearly inverted and severely damaged. Portions of the Ford cargo hold, main deck, and upper deck were also severely damaged. All the cargo doors were found intact and attached to the fuselage structure, except for the Ford cargo door. This is the door on the Ford right side. We've talked about this door in the past. And it was broken horizontally about one quarter of the way above the lower frame. Okay. If you remember, we talked about this in that United flight. I believe it was United 811, where the door on the 747 came open uh, at altitude and uh, oh. ripped off part of the plane. Yeah. Was that the one around Hawaii? Yes, that was. I believe yeah, okay. that was uh, uh, Hawaii to New Zealand. Good memory. Yeah. So they do notice damage to that door. The fractured surface of the cargo door appeared to have been badly frayed. And because the damage appeared to be different from other wreckage pieces, there was an attempt made to recover the door. However, shortly after they lifted it up out of the water, the area of the door which the cable lift was attached to, broke free and went back to the seabed and they couldn't find it again. Wow. So were they like submarine looking for it? Yeah, yeah. Submarine and uh, and sonar. And they found it. They pulled it up, got it oh. out of the water, but then they dropped it and it fell back down. They couldn't find it again. That sucks because you, you drop something in the water, like in a lake or something, and then you try and go pick it up and you're like, oh yeah, it's... Yeah, but now imagine that it's 6,700 <laughs> feet deep. Yeah. You're like, oh, there's no way... Plus, you know, yeah. the way those doors are, it's not like it's going to fall straight down. It yeah. may, you know, catch some water, catch a current. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they, and then ends up, you never find your, whatever you dropped in the Your cargo lake. door. <laughs> whatever you do. When, you know, when you're swimming in the lake and you drop your cargo door. <laughs> That's why cargo shorts are good, right? You just put them right in the, in the pockets. <laughs> so uh, they did find the aft cargo doors and those were all intact. 
The first rule of Fight Camp, tell everyone you know about Fight Camp. Seriously, Fight Camp's awesome. They bring the boxing and kickboxing gym right to your own home. Fight Camp's made for everyone from kids, beginners, experienced boxers, all who want to box at home. Comes with all the gear you're going to need to box at home. It's a freestanding punching bag, gloves, hand wraps, the unique punch tracking sensors that track each punch you throw to measure speed, volume, and output so you can challenge yourself and others. I've used it myself. I've never boxed in my life. I was really intimidated. wasn't sure how it's going to go. Uh, it's super easy to set up. I got an app on my phone. It's got tons of uh, workouts and different things you can do. Uh, tells you if you're a beginner, you know, start here. Super easy, even if you've never done any of this before. I'm, <laughs> I'm the prime example of that. Never done this before. It was so easy to set up and get started. Second rule of Fight Camp. Seriously, tell everyone you know about Fight Camp. You can pay for your Fight Camp over 24 months for less than the cost of a boxing gym and get it right away. Plus, Fight Camp offers free shipping with a 30-day money-back guarantee. To get free shipping on Fight Camp, go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. Joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. You know, it's summer. Weather's getting nicer. Uh, maybe some of us are starting to think about travel again, uh, whether it's getting in a car, uh, having someone drive you around, getting on a plane, or just even walking around your own neighborhood enjoying the nice warmer weather. A lot of people are going to be back on the move this summer, so why don't you take a pair of Raycons with you? Even if you're not, maybe if you're lounging around the house, use them there too. Whether you're listening to podcasts like Black Box Down or bumping your favorite music, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands, plus Raycons look great and feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors with a customizable gel tips for a comfortable fit. They're built to go wherever you go, whatever you do, with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. So they're super convenient, super great, excellent battery life, lasts a super long time. If you're on the go, why not take some uh, Raycon earbuds with you? So listen up. Raycon's offering 15% off all of their products for our listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. Such a good deal. You want to grab a pair, maybe a spare. Uh, it's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. That's buyraycon.com slash blackboxdown. CBD isn't about what you feel, it's about what you don't feel, whether it's stress, anxiety, or pain, feels is a better way to feel better. I know, personally, I've had more uh, anxiety being stuck at home uh, with everything going on in the world the past year. It helps uh, relax, maybe just kind of like alleviate some of that stress. Uh, maybe if you're having trouble with sleeplessness, maybe it's something that could help you. For me, per personally, it was more about stress and anxiety and managing those kinds of things. Feels is a premium CBD that keeps your head clear and helps you feel your best. Better yet, it's hassle-free, delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There are no harmful side effects to worry about. Using feels is easy too. Uh, just put a few drops under your tongue, get relief in minutes. It's important to remember everyone's dose is different. And if you need help figuring yours out, Feels has a hotline to help you find it. Feels also offers a monthly membership, which saves you money on every order, makes your self-care easy. So start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash blackboxdown. You get 50% off your order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash black box down to become a member. Get 50% off taken automatically from your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash black box down. So within a few hours of the accident, Canada's Indian community was a focus of attention because officials were investigating connections to Sikh separatists who had threatened and committed acts of violence and retaliation against Hindus. On July 24th, India's civil aviation minister announced a possibility that the plane had been destroyed by a bomb and the cause was probably some sort of explosion. Mm. The cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder were both cut at the same time, and damage to parts recovered from the Ford cargo bay were consistent with a blast. And it's significant that the CVR and FDR are cut at the same time, because that means like a catastrophic loss, right? Like total yeah. electrical failure. Like something happened to sever it all. Like there's not like one kept running and the other didn't. Like if it happens at the exact same moment, 
that's a catastrophic failure of some kind. They don't even because I was wondering, like, oh, they found the 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 recording, so they could hear people reacting, but they don't even get the reactions yeah. of the in the cockpit voice recorder at the final moments that it records the cabin crews having a, a very mundane conversation. I believe they're having a conversation about custom seals to like seal off the bar carts, you know, to, because they're transitioning between different countries. I think that is the most mundane. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's just like, I think it's the engineers talking about these customs tags and the first officer asks customs tags and the, you know, the flight engineer begins explaining and that like, it just cuts off mid-sentence and that's it. Mm. So yeah, there's nothing to go on. There's, you know, you know, there's no further evidence, no, nothing to give you any insight into what happened into the cockpit. So I know in the past I've said that I'm always kind of wary of covering terrorism episodes mm-hmm. because normally they're very cut and dry. It's, oh, someone snuck a bomb on or mm-hmm. there's not much to learn from in those cases as far as um, the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. This one is pretty landmark. When we get down to the changes, you'll realize why. However, on top of that, this one's also very significant because this flight was also linked to another bombing of an Air India flight, Flight 301, that happened at the same date at the Narita Airport in Tokyo, Japan. Oh. And this other Air India flight also has ties to Vancouver, just like Flight 182 does. Oh. So they're connected. So we're going to rewind time a little bit here. Okay. Before this incident and everything, on June 20th, a man called Canadian Pacific Airlines and booked a one-way ticket to Toronto with the connection to Air India 182 under the name Jaswan Singh. So this is the the incident we've talked about so far. Mm -hmm. However, he also booked a return ticket on another CPA flight to Tokyo connecting with Air India 301 under the name Mohinderbal Singh. Several hours later, a man went into the CPA ticket office in Vancouver and paid $3,005 in cash to change the ticket of Mohinderbal to L. Singh. And he made that ticket a one-way instead of a return ticket. And he changed the Jaswan ticket name to M. Singh. Okay, so they bought the ticket and then someone goes in and says, I want to change these flights and who's on them? He changes the name and changes one to a one-way ticket instead of a round trip. Okay. A couple days later, on June 22nd, M. Singh called about his ticket confirmation to Toronto and then checked in and asked his suitcase to be interlined to flight 182. That flight then departed without him. This is what we've talked about so far. Then, L. Singh checked into his flight and checked one suitcase to be interlined to Air India 301 in Tokyo, and that flight departed without him also. Oh. The flight to Tokyo arrived 14 minutes early. However, the bomb exploded on the baggage cart that was taking it over to Air India 301. Oh. 55 minutes later, Air India disappears from the radar near Ireland. Oh, it blew up on the baggage cart on the way to the plane. Right, 55 minutes before the other one near Ireland explodes. The reason for that is the people who made the bombs didn't realize that they, you know, they have, these bombs have timers. They're supposed to go off at a certain mm-hmm. time. They didn't realize that Japan does not observe daylight savings time. So there was a one-hour oh. time difference. So that's why... 55 minutes later, the one explodes right by Ireland. You know, that's when it was supposed to go off. They expected this bag to be loaded on the plane. They expected the bomb to go off an hour later, basically. Oh. They expected it to be loaded onto the plane and then the plane to take off and then they would blow up when the plane was in the air. Instead, it's on the baggage cart still at this point. And it kills two baggage handlers. Uh, and I believe it injures four other people there on the ground in Tokyo. Yeah. Man, I also, I didn't know that. Japan didn't do that, but it makes sense because I think daylight savings is stupid. But uh. daylight savings is stupid. We should start a podcast about that <laughs> yeah. as well. So, as you can guess, 
no bomb parts are recovered from the ocean, right? I mean, it's yeah. really difficult. They have, they're having trouble finding parts of the plane. But it was found that the bomb in Tokyo was placed inside of a Sanyo stereo tuner of a series that had been shipped to Vancouver. And it just so happens Sanyo only ever made 2,000 of these. Oh. At the location where this bomb explodes in Tokyo, I believe it was still like in one of those warehouses, right? Like the, mm-hmm. So it was in a building. So they were able to, yeah. since the explosion they, was they contained. They could find the parts. Yeah. Right. They could find all the shrapnel, all the parts and piece it back together. So they're able to find part numbers and serial numbers. And they determine, you know, what the explosives were placed in. They determine it's this Sanyo stereo tuner. Only 2,000 are made and they've all been shipped to Vancouver. So... 135 officers are sent to check every store that could have sold these stereo tuners. Oh. And they discovered that there was actually a recent sale to a man named Inderjit Singh Rayat, who was a member of the Sikh terrorist group Babar Khalsa. And he was already under investigation by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. Because the bag, I assume, was a fake name. Very astute, Chris. Yeah. The, <laughs> those people don't exist. There's, yeah. Those names are not real by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they didn't even get first names. Like I said, it was the letter M, then the last name Singh, and the first le- then the letter L, oh, and yeah. the last name Singh. Like, they, they weren't even names. It was just initials. <laughs> it's funny to think about that, because I can't imagine booking a flight without giving, I don't know. Yeah, your name, your birthday, uh, you know, any basic information. Yeah. But then again, when you get a, a, a subway ride or a, a bus ride, you don't, like, hand them all your passport information, you know? it's. I, I guess that's true, but these are international flights. Yeah. You know, you're not, you're not just going down the street in a subway. Yeah. So they execute a search and they recover a receipt for the Sanyo tuner with his name, along with sales of other bomb components. The CSIS was already observing Rayat with wiretaps and had observed a bomb test he conducted in May of 1985. In January of 1986, the Canadian Aviation Safety Board concluded that a bomb explosion in the Ford cargo hold had downed Flight 182. Also, on February 26, 1986, Supreme Court Judge Kirpal of India presented an inquiry report based on an investigation conducted by H.S. Kola, who conducted that a bomb originating in Canada brought down the Air India flight. So I, I want to point something out here, actually. We uh-huh. just had a discussion that ties right into this. I said that um, the tickets were booked with M. Singh and L. Singh as the names. And you talked about you know, not being able to get on a plane without giving your information. I just said that this investigation was conducted by someone named H.S. Cola. I tried uh-huh. to find what H.N.S. stood for, and I cannot find this guy's name. <laughs> and any reference I could find to this online just has the initials H.S. and his last name Cola. So I don't know. I, 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 I wish I could tell you what his name actually was. I, could, I couldn't find it. <laughs> I, could, I could only find these initials. Just generic brands Cola. <laughs> All right, so based on observations, wiretaps, searches, and arrests of persons believed to be participants, the bombing was determined to be the joint project of at least two Sikh terrorist groups with extensive membership in Canada, the United States, Britain, and India. So this is a pretty wide-ranging groups here that they're dealing yeah. with. It's mul- multinational. Militant Sikhs were angered by the destruction of the Golden Temple and the death of Sikhs during India's ground assault on separatists, as well as the 1984 anti-Sikh riots which had led to the deaths of between 8,000 and 17,000 Sikhs across India. The Canadian government was also warned by the Indian Research and Analysis Wing about the possibility of terrorist bombs aboard Air India flights in Canada, and over two weeks before the crash, CSIS reported the potential threat to Air India as well as Indian missions in Canada. I don't know what to tell you here, other than, in my opinion, I think they dropped the bomb. The bomb. In my opinion, (laughs) I think they dropped the ball here. Sorry, Uh slip of the tongue. Uh, 
CSIS watched Rayat buy dynamite. They they watched him ask where to buy dynamite. They watched him buy dynamite. They watched him conduct test explosions, and they still didn't stop this. Yeah, they were like, let's see what he's going to do. Right. I mean, I, I don't know what the rules are, certainly not in Canada, but like as far as like arresting someone preemptively, for some, but like... If you see someone testing bombs and buying bomb materials, right? You could that's grounds to like at least yeah, yeah I I believe that he was buying dynamite. The, the the bomb material we're talking about here is dynamite. He was trying to buy sticks of dynamite and it was dynamite that he placed into the Sanyo tuners. I believe it was four sticks of dynamite he put in for these bombs. Let me tell you how suspicious this dude was being <laughs> just just uh-huh. to cuz I understand your your trepidation, right? Like if the guy doesn't do anything wrong, what can you arrest him on? Yeah. He kept asking people where to buy dynamite because he kept claiming that he had tree stumps on his property he wanted to remove. He didn't mm-hmm. have any tree stumps on his property. Then he kept asking at electronic like hobbyist stores about different alarm clocks oh. that he could program, right? And then he would get he would buy these actually I think he ended up buying an automobile clock, like one that you would see in a car. And then he took it to like a hobbyist shop asking like a way so that when the alarm goes off, instead of beeping, it just constantly transmits an electrical signal. What? (laughs) Right. It's like, I mean, okay, maybe the guy's innocent, but he's buying dynamite. He's looking for specific clocks and he's trying to find a way to make the alarm go off constantly instead of intermittently Mm -hmm. to then pass that electrical signal on to power something else. It's like, this is pretty clear what's going on here. And they know this? Right. They know all of this. They're monitoring him, and they're like, "Hmm, yeah, it's yeah." He, I guess he likes he he wants to make sure he wakes up on time. Well, <laughs> like, his story was that he had an RV. I believe he said he had an RV or a camper. When the alarm clock went off, he wanted it to transmit an electrical signal to a light that would turn on that would wake him up, and that if it was intermittent, the light wouldn't turn on. Mm. So again, he has a cover story, but it all still, seems suspicious when yeah. you look at it all and add it all together. Well, especially if he's already being monitored. As a terrorist. Right. So I I don't know. This seems like this could have been avoidable, in my opinion. So there were actually several other suspects in this case. Uh, however, Rayat was the only conviction. And in 2000, listen to this, in 2003, he took a plea deal. Think about that. That's 18 years later. Oh my God, that's so long. His trial was still going on? Yeah, he finally took a plea deal in 2003, and he was to testify against others in the plot. However, he declined to implicate anyone else in the bombings, and he was convicted of manslaughter for constructing the bomb. Not murder? No. What? I can't speak to that. I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure there's ins and outs for how all this is is run. Uh But I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of background to this story. I mean, we could probably do another hour-long episode just about these people who constructed the bomb, their involvement in all of these other world affairs that we've talked about Uh that led them to this point. There are three or four other people who are very, very much suspected to have been involved in this who never got prosecuted. There is, it is so complicated, Chris. Yeah. I, I can't begin to convey to you the level of complexity that goes into this. Like, even just researching this, I had to read about, you know, these anti Sikh riots in India. Like, there's all these levels of religious persecution, political pressure. There's all these things that lead up to this bombing. That it's like it's just so much to wrap your head around. We we had to trim it down. Just and we're gonna we're gonna probably end up being close to an hour just talking about uh-huh. this. We could do another hour just about all those other things and about the backgrounds of these people alone. Well, yeah, because if he was part of a terrorist group, I would assume he was working with other people. Right. So yeah, he was. There's like I said, there's 
there is a lot more to this. <laughs> but we're focusing as much as we can just on the aviation incident, just on Area okay. 182. Okay, so, of course, there were recommendations as a result of all of this. Undertake an ongoing review of established aviation security standards to prevent the placement of explosive substances on board commercial aircraft. Establish a program of monitoring the implementation of security measures in airports around the world in cooperation with governments concerned. For each airport studied, it should report its findings and recommend any improvements that may be required. So all this so far, they're just like, let's review all of our security. Let's redo all of this. Uh -huh. Consider establishing a group of civil aviation experts to investigate serious breaches of security. The purpose of these investigations would be to determine the facts of an incident so that necessary measures could be developed and implemented worldwide to prevent similar breaches in the future. Develop practical procedures for reconciliation of interline passengers and their baggage at intermediate airports. This one and the next one are the big ones, in my opinion. Uh -huh. Interlining of checked-in baggage should not be done if a passenger does not have a confirmed reservation on the onward carrier flight. Oh, and then this next one too, actually. <laughs> the baggage <laughs> of the interline passenger should be matched with passengers by the onward carriers before loading the baggage onto the aircraft. So these three are like the biggest takeaways from these. We've kind of skirted around some of these in previous episodes. Uh -huh. But because of this incident, you have to be on the plane that your bag is on. If you are not on the plane, your bag is not getting on that plane, which seems like common sense nowadays. Yeah. But this is the reason that that exists. You know, obviously this guy who didn't even give his real name was able to get a bag on a plane that had a bomb in it. Yeah. I guess what would have happened because the flight was full and he was on layover, I guess, if the flight wasn't full, would he just like... I guess the bag would have been loaded and he just would have not gotten on the flight. Right. Yeah, he didn't get on the flight from Vancouver to begin with. So it didn't matter to him one way yeah. or another. He just wanted to make sure that the bag got on. He only made a big stink because he was on standby. If he hadn't been on standby, they would have interlined the bag automatically. He wouldn't have mm. had to go through that. Yeah. And in fact, even the procedure at the time or the, the gate agent broke the process by allowing him to have his bag interlined oh. while he was still on standby. The rules were, if he, since he was on standby, she should not have done that. But, you know, she had that long line. He was yelling at her. She probably just wanted to, you know, get through this and get on, like, help these people. She yeah. said, fine, let's just do it. Even though it was, it was against the rules at the time, you know, now the rules are definitely, like, written in stone. Like, this can never happen again. Well, you say that, but I, my bag has been, <laughs> has been on a plane that I wasn't on. <laughs> well, but, but, but now... Not, not, not on purpose. That's like, it got right. mixed up in the... Uh, I guess, in the transfers, right? Yeah, well, now they'll account for you. They know that you're on the plane and they think they're putting the bag on the plane that you're on, but it'll mix up. And it's happened to me before where yeah. I'll have a tight connection and my bag doesn't make the plane I'm on. So they put it on a different one, you know, yeah. to get to me or to get near to me. And I don't, I won't find out till I land. I'm like, where's my bag? Like, oh, your bag's in Frankfurt now. Like, oh my yeah. God, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, don't worry, we send it there because we have more flights. We'll have it back here right away. Like, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, that does happen, but you could not make that happen on your own. Yeah, that, that's just bad luck. Right. Got a few more recommendations here. Whenever a government becomes aware of a particular high-risk security threat, it should not only notify the airline at risk, but also connecting airlines in order that extra precaution can be taken at potential points of introduction of interline baggage into the system. So just better awareness. Passenger count should be done at the boarding gate, and in case of no-show of a passenger, their baggage must be offloaded. I know you probably have. I've been delayed on a plane before because they're like, we have to take some bags out of the cargo hold. That has definitely happened to me before. Yeah, and I think we talked about it on an earlier episode where there's like a flight was delayed because they had a, a bag on the plane that they were worried the person wasn't on the plane, but then they're like, oh, wait, yeah, I can't remember which one it was, though. So. And in fact, in that episode, I alluded to 
the origin of that rule. And this is this is the reason. I said at the time, I think I said we might cover that eventually in the future. Well, now we're finally, oh. <laughs> we're actually finally covering it. Effectiveness of the instrument known as the PD4 is highly questionable. It is not advisable to rely on it. I didn't even get into this. So, like I said, they kind of trained the security people how to use this PD4 to look for explosives around the bags. Mm-hmm. The PD4 went off when they scanned this guy's what? bag, but it made a different sound than they were shown in training. So they thought it was okay. Oh. When it went off, it was like a little more intermittent and a slightly different sound. So they thought it might have just been a malfunction. Oh, no. It seems like there were so many close calls where it yeah. w- didn't get picked up. And then there would have been two bombs that didn't go- that went off on the ground instead of one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Airlines should have effective backup security equipment or procedures available in case of mechanical breakdown of security equipment. It's what you talked about. Uh-huh. You said they didn't have another one? Yeah. Because it was already on a plane, right? Or no, no, you said it was the first. So what it was it, at Toronto. How would it have gotten through the x-ray had it not just broken randomly? It might not have. They might have caught it if the x-ray was working. <sighs> this is like another one of those like safety nets that broke. Like, And I think we've learned that as we do all of these episodes. Lots of times it's hard to point at one thing that happens that caused an aviation incident. Mm-hmm. And in this case, even, even when it's a bomb, you think, oh, well, it's the bomb. Well, I mean, was the x-ray failed? The people didn't know how to use the PD-4. The guy was being followed, but they didn't act on it fast. Like, there's all these other things that could have stopped it. Yeah, they let the bag on when they shouldn't have. Yeah, there's like four or five things that, yeah. They all have to line up just right to cause this to to happen. And the last recommendation they have, I don't understand why they recommended this. Mm -hmm. They recommended the cockpit voice recorder should record all conversation and sounds in the cockpit for the entire duration of the flight and not merely for the last 30 minutes. And we talked about this before in the FedEx 705 flight in, that took place in 1994. Oh, that was like the third episode? Yeah, where they fought in the plane. Yeah, that's a crazy one. It's a super, super crazy one. But, I mean, obviously it's a good recommendation. I don't know what yeah. happened in this incident that caused them to recommend it, but it was one of the recommendations. So there were memorials erected in Canada and elsewhere to commemorate the victims. In 1986, a monument was unveiled in Ahakista, West Cork, Ireland, on the first anniversary of the bombing. Groundbreaking occurred on the 11th of August, 2006, at a playground that would form part of a memorial in Stanley Park, Vancouver, British Columbia. Another memorial was unveiled on the 22nd of June, 2007, in Umber Bay Park, East Toronto, Ontario. Uh, Many of the bombing victims had lived in Toronto. Uh, Mm -hmm. This memorial features a sundial, uh, the base of which consists of stones from all provinces and territories of Canada, as well as countries of the other victims, and a wall-oriented toward Ireland, bearing the names of the dead. A third Canadian memorial opened in Ottawa in 2014, and a fourth memorial was unveiled in Lachine, Montreal, on the 26th anniversary of the tragedy. Uh, There's no memorials in India as of yet. Okay. On June 23, 2005, 20 years after the downing of Air India Flight 182, Prime Minister Paul Martin attended a memorial service in Ahakista, Ireland, with the victims' families to grieve. This would be the first time a Canadian Prime Minister had visited the Irish Memorial uh, which was built right after the bombing. Governor General Adrian Clarkson, on the advice of Martin, declared the anniversary a National Day of Mourning. And during the anniversary uh, observances, Martin said the bombing was a Canadian problem, not a foreign problem, saying, make no mistake, the flight may have been Air India's, it may have taken place off the coast of Ireland, but this is a Canadian tragedy. Uh-huh. The perpetrator uh, that was convicted of manslaughter, Rayat, he was actually released to a halfway house in 2016. What? And is now fully released with some restrictions since early 2017 to his family's home in British Columbia. I don't get that at all because he killed like 
300 over 300 people. people. Yeah. yeah. This was the largest mass killing in Canadian history. It was the deadliest act of aviation terrorism until September 11th. How did he get just manslaughter? Like I I guess I you know. said it was complicated. It is a very complicated, but n- no amount of complication, nothing can excuse killing three over 300 people like this. Like there there's yeah. no amount of compl- I'm not I'm not saying it's complicated to try to justify yeah. it. I'm saying it's uh-huh. complicated in that there's a lot of background to understand yeah. the motivations in, uh, to doing this. So I have a question. The bag that exploded in Japan, how did that get through security? That's an excellent question, Chris. I, I don't know. I, I wondered the same thing. Maybe it hadn't cleared security at this point. I don't know where it was in the process. Regardless, uh-huh. it cleared security in Vancouver to get to Tokyo. I don't know at what stage of the baggage clearance it was in Tokyo when it went off. I bet you they test like looked at what it would look like in an x-ray with that stereo and i'm sure it didn't look that suspicious maybe yeah it's possible maybe they did a good job of covering it up maybe actually what you just said there reminded me of something that's incredibly frustrating uh i don't know if you're gonna want to hear this so i'm sorry i'm gonna tell you anyway (laughs) there was a lot of research done as a result of this incident right because they had to determine you know if there were Four sticks of dynamite, you know, is that sufficient to bring down a plane? You know, they recreate, they, you know, they get the same kind of Sanyo tuner, they put dynamite in it, they measure, you know, do all kinds of measurements on the explosive forces. They do the same kind of explosion again, they put it in a, a cargo container and they recreate like if it's in a plane and they see, you know, of course it can bring down a plane. Then over the next 10 years or so, mm-hmm. they try to figure out ways to mitigate explosions like this. And they conduct tests and they actually develop, uh, I want to say it was in 1997. In, uh, it was around 97, somewhere in the late 90s. They do some tests where they develop hardened cargo pods for a plane. Oh. They conduct an explosive test in one of those and it's able to contain the explosion. Oh. They also do another test where they line the inside of the cargo hold on a plane with basically like armor, like some kind of uh, material yeah. to suppress an explosion. And if they put a normal cargo pod in there, it's also able to suppress the explosion and keep the plane together. So there's two ways to stop it. There's two ways you you can stop these types of explosions now. Do you want to guess how many of those ways have been implemented? I'm going to guess zero. Zero. (laughs) Neither of those systems is in use today to prevent uh, explosions from taking down a plane anymore. The rationale is that those pods, those hardened pods to Uh contain explosions cost like $10,000 each. And if they get mishandled or if they get bumped by a forklift, for example, it weakens them and they have to be thrown away and they have to get a new one. Oh. These countermeasures exist, but they may not be practical in everyday use. Yeah, and maybe they just focused on ways to keep the bomb from getting on the plane in the first place. Right, so that's really where the focus has been uh, on that side. Uh, I Personally, I would feel better if <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the, with additional uh, safety. Uh, I've never thought about, you know, any all the years I've been flying, I've never thought about a bomb being on the plane. It's not something I worry about ever, mm-hmm. but it would be nice if, you know, there was the extra level of uh, protection in, in the cargo hold. Because, yeah, you said the one was the walls. Yeah. That one's less likely to get bumped, right? Well, it could get jostled as they're loading in the okay. containers. Um, it, it could be a similar thing where, you know, if it gets bumped too much in one spot, it develops a weak spot. Mm. It could introduce more weight to the plane. Okay, yeah. There's, yeah. You know, there's other extenuating circumstances that make it more difficult. But, I mean, that's pretty much it. That's Air India 182. Like I said, no, not the kind of incident I would normally cover. I'm normally, you know, normally I feel like terrorism is very cut and dry. It's very, you know, 
easily explained and there's not much learned from it. But I feel mm-hmm. like this was a very monumental incident that uh, a lot changed because of. Yeah. Anyway, I uh, highly recommend you give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we'll post uh, images, videos, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, we also have Facebook too. I forgot. I don't, I don't think oh, I yeah? said that. Yeah, and, and, and that makes it easier for you to share it with uh, family, friends, anybody who you think might be uh, interested in listening. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I, already did, I already did the outro. There's one more thing I remember that I forgot to cover. Okay. At the very beginning of the episode, uh, I, I, I've, I've come back to this already a couple of times. I talked uh-huh. about how the three planes converged on the radar. Oh, yeah. Flip. What happened was, like I said, the Air India flight was at 31,000 feet. So it was the lowest out of the three planes. When it exploded, it created a debris cloud which is what the radar then lumped everyone together. That's why all the lumps oh. converged into one. Because the radar then detected all of this debris and just lumped them all together as one. Then when the debris cleared, it separated them back out into two planes. That Okay. We came back to talk about it halfway through the episode, but I hadn't said that it was a bomb yet. So I didn't want to give away that it was a bomb at that point. And yeah, I meant to bring th- it back up here at the end. I was watching, a, a, I guess it was a World War II documentary, and when they were trying to figure out how to... Uh, basically scramble radar and stuff and uh i think it was the uh the british that created these things where they would um sprinkle down like just foil Mm -hmm. just to create debris in the air to stop radar where they all the planes would disappear yeah they call that uh chaff chaff yeah it's it's a radar countermeasure chaff is still as far as i know chaff is still used uh Uh today i mean it's it's definitely very different than what they developed in World War II, but you know, yeah, to your point, a debris cloud like that confuses radar. When you described the beginning when they all converged, I was like, oh, did some of them hit each other? Or, but I didn't think about just, yeah, the debris. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it, for real, that's it. I know, <laughs> I, keep saying, I keep saying one more thing and bringing something up, but that's it, that's Air India 182. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week. Bye.